This is the BBC. Hello. In 1940, a dog called Robot fell into a hole at Lascaux in the Dordogne. His owners explored the hole deeper and discovered thousands of cave paintings of bulls and horses and deer that are now famous. Around the world, there are many more caves like this that Stone Age people, tens of thousands of years ago, decorated with handprints or abstract symbols or images of animals. They're fascinating in themselves. Perhaps even more so are the questions they raise of how they were made and why and what that tells us of their creators and what it meant to be a human in a world of Neanderthals as well as Homo sapiens. With me in their homes to discuss cave art are Paul Pettit, Professor of Paleolithic Archaeology at Durham University, Chantal Connella, Senior Lecturer in Early Prehistory at Newcastle University, and Alistair Pike, Professor of Archaeological Sciences at the University of Southampton. Alistair Pike, can you give us a broad outline of what cave art is and where in the world it's found? Well, if you include rock shelters, which after all really are just kind of shallow caves, then cave art is found on every continent uh, except for Antarctica. And it kind of consists of a variety of forms from engravings that are usually made with perhaps a stone tool uh, scratched into the wall to bas-relief sculptures where they're carving out a texture in the, in the cave wall uh, to painted abstract symbols um, and also kind of fully figurative polychrome paintings, which in Europe are mostly of animals. When we're talking about caves, is that the only environment where these works were created or is it simply where they were best preserved? Now, we do find some examples of Paleolithic art uh, in the open air, um, notably in the Kerr Valley in Portugal. And this is an area where there's low deposition and low erosion, so the rocks have preserved. Uh, so it may well have been that there was a lot of art out in the landscape, and it's really the caves have protected it from erosion and from ice sheets and so on. But equally, uh, we find art in the very deepest, darkest parts of the cave. And there's something special about those caves that are attracting these artists because it's not a place where humans are living. So I think art is kind of multi-purpose. There's some art which was designed to be seen from a distance. And there's some art that was done in small niches that was designed to be hidden. You use the word Paleolithic. Can you tell us what that, uh, can you put that into years? Yes, the Paleolithic, which is divided into different stages, starts at about two million years ago and comes down to the beginning of the Holocene, so the end of the last Ice Age at around 10,000 years ago. We think the oldest piece of cave art uh, is 65,000 or older than 65,000 years, um, but there are other forms of symbolic behaviour that date back to at least 115,000 years. So basically, for the purposes of this programme, we're talking 55, 65,000 years to 10,000 years. Yes. Thank you very much. Chantal Canella, we mentioned Lascaux. Can you please describe that to us and why it was so very important and what period it was created? That's three questions, I'm afraid. Never mind, I'm sure you're up to it. Well, when you enter Lascaux, you come to really one of the most spectacular parts of the cave, the Hall of the Bulls. And this has got about 130 figures in, the, in this. This includes sort of horses, uh, the bulls themselves, which are large aurochs, wild cattle, and deer as well. And this is... On a fantastic scale, really, it's uh, there are four immense bulls, for example. Um, what one do you of mean them, immense? One of them is about five and a half meters. So these, this is art that's sort of really designed to be impressive. And the important, one of the important things about Alaska is it's got a very dazzling white sort of natural calcite gleam in these in, in the first couple of chambers. So this art really, really, really stands out. And this is a very large chamber. It's about twenty meters. It's you get, one gets a sense these are really beautiful images, really spectacular, really impressive. 
lots of people could fit into this uh, chamber. We can we can imagine that this is art that was sort of meant to be perhaps seen by large groups of people and admired. And this contrasts with some of the other art at um, uh, uh, Lasco. As Alistair said, we get uh, we get art in uh, the distant depths of caves and small chambers and niches. Um, so, for example, another part of Lasco um, uh, was known as the, the shaft. This is a five-metre deep shaft into the ground. People had been ha- lowered in, down on ropes. And here we see quite different type of art, um, art that's a bit more mysterious. Um, perhaps not everyone, uh, only few people are meant to see it. We have here an image of a, a charging bison that's wounded and next to it, a really rare image of a human. I think it's the only one in, in this particular cave. Um, but it's a human that seems to have a bird's head. And next to this is a, a very enigmatic um, bird on, on a stick. So this is obviously a, a, a really interesting image that's very meaningful in some way. But it's, perhaps it's a lot more secret. Um, perhaps only its maker saw it. So, John, you use the word impressive. Who are they trying to impress? Well, this is a, a chamber that the whole uh, social group could potentially fit in. So, and we know that adults and children are, are going into these caves. So, certainly, the immediate uh, social group who created it. We do have sites at this time period where we do seem to have more people uh, meeting up and exchanging things. And in some ways, these ca- uh, these painted caves mark these landscapes for people who might be wandering through, but also for, for future generations. We have people coming back and making new marks on some of these painted caves several thousand years later. Thank you very much, Paul. Can we get a sense of what it was like to experience these multicoloured paintings in caves without natural light. Mm, It was certainly very different to today. I mean, obviously, we see these things statically lit with electric light, whether we're looking at them in books, in museums, or in the caves themselves. And obviously, uh, they didn't have these these benefits at their disposal. The light sources they had were either small little hearths, you know, literally burning small amounts of... um, wood fuel uh, on the cave's floor or little lamps uh, just by made by taking a small block of stone a cobble uh, perhaps uh, battering out uh, a little concavity in it so it forms a natural bowl filling that with some animal fat and a little wick perhaps of juniper wood it would give you a little light perhaps of a meter or two's diameter it might last half an hour before you needed to replace uh, the fat uh, that obviously is nothing like a powerful torch uh, of any form. So caves are obviously mysterious, frightening places. The other thing our Paleolithic artists wouldn't have known about is how caves form, what they are, and most importantly, what acoustics explain particular noises uh, and so on. It would all be mysterious, not to mention dangerous uh, in places. It's a very tactile experience uh, to explore these uh, mysterious places. And we have to remember that in caves where light stops, life stops. We have lots of evidence that these hunter-gatherers of the Paleolithic are occupying cave mouths, but they don't really need to explore particularly deep into the dark zone. They might want to ensure there aren't any sleeping carnivores in the back before they bed down themselves. But beyond that, and the fact that we can find art several kilometres 
into very difficult systems suggests that there is a real importance uh, for being there that we assume goes beyond uh, that, uh, that quotidian. So we have to remember in that shifting light, we're surrounded by impenetrable darkness, everything is moving, shadows are elongating, and we certainly can see in some of the art uh, this concern with animating it as well. So the art becomes not so much a fixed picture on the wall, but a second or two uh, of a little film uh, image, rather like a flick book image uh, and thereabouts. And finally, the very fact that as Alistair's already mentioned, some of the art is in very difficult to access, difficult to see places. The very positioning, the difficulty of getting there, suggests to us that actually we should think of this as a form of installation art. You know, the, the difficulty, the, the discomfort, uh, the way that one's position changing alters the view of the art and so on, is all part of this overall experience in a very mysterious and frightening place. So what's your view of why they would take the trouble and to face the dangers uh, to go that deep and that far into these caves to do these things? To, a, to an extent, we can say that in some cases it would be simple curiosity. Obviously, these places offer uh, shelter from the very severe climates these people are living in. It is the Ice Age, uh, after all. Uh, but really, the extent to which these groups have brought in materials pigments from various sources, equipment, kit if you like, uh, and lugged it through often very deep caves, suggests to us that of course this isn't simple graffiti, you know, this isn't I got here uh, far to the back of the cave, aren't I clever, uh, that it is planned, it is uh, deliberate and it presumably forms part of wider activities that we might call ritual, cosmological uh, and this kind of thing. And I think there's a lot of themes uh, that we can find in the art uh, that, that further support this notion that they are there for non-normal purposes. Let's just have a bit more information about what's going on. Alistair Pike, with, with others, you've pioneered a way of dating images where there's no carbon. Could you summarise that for it? And basically, how are you dating these images? Yes, there's a, there's a real difficulty in dating cave paintings by radiocarbon dating, which is the, the, the kind of go-to dating method for most archaeology. And the reason for that is that um, not all paintings contain organic carbon. Uh, and also radiocarbon really has a, an effective limit of around 50,000 years, so it can't date anything older than that. So we've been using the radioactive decay of uranium to thorium in a method called uranium-thorium dating. Um, and that can work out the age of a sample that incorporated uranium at its formation. And that's not the case for pigments, but it is the case for calcium carbonate formations in caves similar to stalagmites and stalactites. These are thin layers of, of calcite that form. And if they form on top of paintings, we can use the ratio of thorium to uranium to work out how long has elapsed since that layer formed. And because it's on top of the painting, that gives us a minimum age for the art. In a few really rare examples, we have painting that's done on top of an existing uh, layer of calcite, and then maybe even calcite forms again on top of the painting. So we have a kind of sandwich of dates, and that way we can get a minimum and a maximum age. Can you just flush it out with numbers? Um, probably from the end of the Ice Age to around 18,000 years ago, you have a period of painting that's, that's very figurative. It, it includes the wonderful polychrome bison of Altamira Cave in Cantabria. 
And the period before that, going back to maybe 27,000 years, you see a lot of red outline animals. So they're not filling them in. They're not trying to make them look completely realistic. And then the period before that, um, and, and back to the point at which humans arrive in, in Europe, you see a lot of symbols being painted, abstract symbols that we, we probably don't know the meaning of. But what we've been able to do is to take samples on top of some of these symbols and show that some of them date to older than 65,000 years. Now that makes them something very different because we know that there were no modern humans in, in Europe uh, until around 42,000 years ago. So this is rather so, radical. So what, what is it telling us? It's telling us that these paintings must have been made by Neanderthals. The previously, just to set those in context, I mean, in the late 19th century when uh, Neanderthals stirred the uh, interest of, uh, of people to a great extent, they were considered to be inferior in every way, nearer chimpanzees than humans, was one, one line accredited. And that seems to have been blown out of the water by this, doesn't it? Well, well, it should have been, yes. Um, uh, but the, the, the kind of notion that Neanderthals were kind of uh, dumb, brutish creatures, uh, which, you know, originated in, in the original definition of what a Neanderthal is when William King uh, defined the species. He identified it as a separate species. Uh, and he said it was devoid, Neanderthals were devoid of all theistic concepts. They had no God, if you like. And to him, that represented something that was, was um, very uncivilized and very backward. And to the extent where when they were debating what they were going to call this new species, a German scientist, Ernst Heichel, suggested that the name Homo stupidus, the stupid human, and you would think that actually once you can demonstrate that Neanderthals are painting and in fact what they're painting is is indistinguishable to what modern humans who at this point are only in Africa uh, and the Near East is completely indistinguishable. It's it's um, the use of very basic mineral pigments. It's painting symbols, nothing figurative. Um, then you suddenly realise that we should never, you know, we should not have this idea about Neanderthals being kind of dumb and brutish. What's your revised view of the Neanderthals? How should we think about them now? In terms of symbolic capability, that they were just as able as modern humans were. They had the capacity to think and express themselves symbolically. And this may have even inclu included some form of language. Um, and what's really interesting is if you, we've always looked for the origin, the evolution, if you like, of that, the, the ability to, to uh, exhibit symbolic behavior within the kind of modern human lineage. But now we've found it in Neanderthals, we should perhaps start looking much earlier on, um, perhaps in the last shared common ancestor between Neanderthals and modern humans, perhaps half a million years ago. Chantal, what techniques did people use to make the works? What skills would they need? Well, there's a variety of uh, different techniques, yes, from the very simple to the very complex. Um, so at the most basic level, uh, cave walls are quite often have a calcium carbonate sheen or clay through which people can drag their, their fingers. Um, then we have engravings uh, using flint tools, which is a very common way to decorate these caves. Um, and we even find, sometimes find the worn flint tools in these caves as well. So simple engravings, but also more elaborate bas relief, for example. We also have uh, line drawings uh, made with uh, black pigment, um, quite often charcoals used or burnt bone, um, but also uh, mineral as well, um, black mineral, manganese, dark side. But the more elaborate ones, um, the polychrome images, are made through a variety of different uh, types of mineral pigments, varying sort of iron oxides, uh, which produce sort of reds or, or yellows. 
white, uh, a variety of different pigments are used, um, mica or, or illite or, or calcium carbonate taken from the, from the cave. And these pigments we sort of ground up, and again, we sometimes find um, evidence for this on the floor of caves, and mixed with binders, so water or, or animal fats, for example. And then these could be applied. We sometimes, uh, there's sometimes evidence for use of brushes made from animal hair or, or pads, uh, or also stencils as well, either made from hide or, or people use their hands as stencils as well. People um, could uh, spray paint uh, with using pigment in their mouth um, and then even sort of spitting it directly or through hollow bone. And these all give quite different effects and sometimes sort of effects of, of depth and, and shading, which gives give a lot of these paintings quite a lot of uh, realism and sense of, of motion and, and the animal. Mm -hmm. Can I bring Paul in now? Paul, uh, how skillful would you say that some of these works were? Well, to an extent, the answer depends on what particular phase we're dealing with. So, for example, if we're dealing with Alistair's greater than 65,000-year-old Neanderthal phrase, not very, because this is a non-figurative art, not that that needs to be unsophisticated, but it's made of um, uh, covering the body or the hands and fingers with pigment and pressing them against the wall, and a few variations thereof. So, obviously, something that most parents have an example of that their children have done uh, on their fridge. But when figurative art appears, and we think at the moment that seems fairly clearly uh, exclusive to Homo sapiens, whether we're a different species to Neanderthals uh, or otherwise, when that appears, in my opinion, between 36,000 and 37,000 years ago, fairly abruptly in several parts of Europe, the animal outlines that are being created, that are being drawn with wet pigment, are fairly simplistic. And it's only a few thousand years after that that, uh, that we can start seeing a concern for naturalism. And it's from this point we can start saying they're very accomplished in terms of their ability to think, I want to draw a horse, and that looks pretty dynamically uh, like a horse. But really, it's only from the time of Lascaux, as Chantal mentioned, about 20,000 years ago, the late Upper Paleolithic, we, uh, we call it, uh, that we can really see all the spectacular iconic aspects of Upper Paleolithic art. So these great scenes of all of these herd animals, these lawnmowers of the Pleistocene, grasslands, bison, wild cattle like aurochs and horse, uh, red deer uh, and so on, that we can see them interacting in these little film clips, if you like, from, uh, from the tundra and also a concern with perspective, a concern with detail. Alistair? Well, what I find really interesting is that there are a significant number of paintings that are of animals where they've not needed to paint a complete animal. What they've done is taken the topography of the wall and simply kind of highlighted it. So you'll find a kind of bulge on the wall, a bit like the, the bosses on the ceiling of the polychrome chamber in Altamira. They've wrapped the bison around them. There are some examples where they've used the cracks to form the back of animals and so on. And so they're, they're using a real economy to express these animals. And it's almost as though the animals were already there on the wall and they were just highlighting them by just putting perhaps a horn on or perhaps putting a hind leg in or something. Yes, I think absolutely. And of course, the, the idea of technical skill is a, a, a modern concept. And I'm sure 
in places like Lascaux, in Altamira, in Neo, this was very important, but I quite agree that much of the art we have is very incomplete, and what seems to have been important is the creation of the art, rather than, you know, I'm going to make an engraving that then lots of people can come to enjoy. It's me creating it that's important, and it's getting that message uh, across that, yes, this is a bison I'm drawing. Chantal, if Homo sapiens has more in common with Neanderthals than was once thought, how does it change ideas about what it means to be human? Now, for a few years, um, art has been seen as the sort of last bastion of human exceptionalism. And I think it's really exciting, um, these new findings suggesting Neanderthals are are making art as well. Um, It just shows what we see as something quite key to humanity is shared. It's shared across uh, species. And very different people looked at cave walls and were keen to leave their imprint, leave their sign, and uh, saw their relationship to these particular places. Does that, or how does that change the idea of what it is to be human? Well, I think it completely changes it. Um, no longer can we hold these anthropocentric and, and to some extent Eurocentric views of the kind of primacy of humans, the fact, the idea that they are at the, the very top of the evolutionary tree, um, because one of the, uh, the characteristics that have always been attributed to humans, i.e. symbolic behaviour and painting and so on, uh, we can show that's now shared with Neanderthals. Paul? I think it's looking increasingly unlikely that the Neanderthals were a distinct species to us now, the more we have genetic sequences from the two. So the answer would be there that, you know, well, this is cultural variation. We can see a lot of variation among chimpanzee groups from group to group, so we might expect it uh, between Western European Neanderthals, Near Eastern Neanderthals, Homo sapiens, uh, and so on. So to me, it's not surprising uh, that Neanderthals are producing art in deep caves but as Chantal says the important thing is is what is the variability here uh, you know that their behavior leaving behind a hand stencil could be just as symbolic as writing um, a, uh, a phrase of Shakespeare's or something like that uh, on the cave wall we work with very blunt tools uh, when we talk about uh, symbolism so really it's about behavioral variability and what works and what helps you survive in these difficult climates This might be an area where everyone has a different view, but what was the purpose of the art? Why were they doing it? (laughs) Well, for the first hundred years or so that uh, the the age and authenticity of the art was recognised, people would forward umbrella theories, you know, one idea that would explain the whole of the art. And obviously, for the figurative phase alone, we're dealing with some 25,000 years, and it changes quite significantly over that time. So uh, there will be, of course, a number of reasons for it. Some of it public, if you like, some of it group-orientated. What were these reasons? Well, when it was first shown to be authentic, this was the late 19th century, and it, it, we see this very Victorian view of art that, well, it's aesthetics, isn't it? You know, you're, you're in a deep cave, you're probably bored because it's snowing outside, and uh, you draw the animals that are important to you, and it's simply that. It has no function, it's not a religion or anything like that. And it's really only we co- when we come into, say, the 1920s that... Uh, Uh, People are now observing, shall we say, small-scale tribal societies elsewhere around the world and and demonstrating that art is rarely that. It always has some kind of function, magical function. So the idea that it 
sympathetic magic. It was either produced to create fertility or to uh, ensure success in the hunt, uh, for example. And then as we come through to the 60s and 70s, the information age, the notion that it's didactic, you know, you can learn a lot about your prey animals. Um, uh, it comes about, and then finally from the late 90s, this awful new age notion that it's all about shamans in altered states of consciousness and, uh, and stuff like that. Alistair? First of all, I would, I'd just like to add to what, what the, the sort of interpretive side of, of looking at cave paintings. And one of the ideas that I'm quite keen on is really about how you survive as a hunter-gatherer in the Ice Age and the role that cave art might have, may have played in that. Yeah. And if you are kind of hunting animals and gathering, then you don't want to be in an enormous group. Um, because you just have to travel much further to get enough food to feed everyone or move the, the whole group continuously around the landscape. And so there's this idea that, in fact, what, what would happen is that groups would break off into, into smaller groups and they might spend um, a season or a good part of a year in their smaller groups. But this creates certain problems, one of which is inbreeding, is that if you have a small group, um, then your mates are selected from people who are much more likely to be related to you. So the way that this kind of model would work is by having um, an aggregation event where you bring all these small groups back together and then they can uh, interbreed with each other, but also they can swap knowledge. Uh, they can swap you know, knowledge about hunting grounds and, and how they've managed to survive the year and so on. And we wonder whether or not these, uh, certainly these large caves with very public large spaces with um, big impressive cave paintings might have formed a part of that kind of aggregation of these hunter-gatherers. But then on the other hand, we have very personal pieces of art. And I think the, the hand stencils are, are perhaps one of the most intimate kind of relationships you can have with the artists themselves, because they uh, will have stood in almost the same place in a cave uh, as you, the observer. Um, and they would have uh, had the same kind of body attitude. You, you may have had to crawl underneath a small ledge because these are not always positioned on nice flat walls. In fact, some of them are quite deliberately hidden away. And that gives you a real sense of connection with the past and with the artist. Just your hand outlined on the wall. Well, you know, some people just say it's, a, it's, it's like a graffiti tag. It's like saying, uh, I am here. But actually, if you look at the location of these hands, um, you've got to ask yourself, who are they actually saying that to? Because some of them are, you wouldn't be able to see them if you just were walking down a cave. So, for example, one of the 65,000-year-old uh, hand stencils in Maltraviezo Cave um, in Estremadura in Spain is actually underneath a kind of little overhang of the wall. And to see it, you actually have to lie down on the cave floor and kind of shimmy in. It's a bit like trying to lie down underneath a table, and it's about 50 to 70 centimetres above your head. Now, that doesn't strike me as a kind of um, a, a demonstration of I've been here. That's something a little bit more personal, I think. It's about putting something in a very particular and special place within a cave. Chantal, we have some smaller object of art from the Stone Age, portable art it's called. How do these objects relate to the art in caves? Well, there's some similarities, particularly in the sort of themes we see. Um, so we get uh, animal bones and flat stones engraved with animals and geometric designs that are found across cave art and some of this more portable art. And there's similar sort of play between material and form. Um, uh, so, as Alistair said, sort of the shape of the cave is used to, um, if it looks like a horse's head, for example, a horse's head is painted. And we can see this similar interesting play with form in, in decorated tools. So animal bodies are sort of fitted in to tools, quite often with, huge, with quite a lot of humour. So we get this class of uh, objects, um, uh, spear throwers or 
lattles, which have a hook on the end to um, to keep the javelin in place. And animal bodies are sort of contorted into this to create uh, to create particular forms. So a bird beak might uh, be the hook, or a mammoth might lift up its tail. We even have a sort of fawn defecating with a bird perched on it, which acts as the hook for this. Um, so we do see similarities. We also see some differences as well. So some of the cave art is so much uh, uh, based on the cave as a place. And this other material is portable. Um, it can be carried around with you. Um, but it's also found in much more domestic contexts. And there's quite a complementarity sometimes between cave art, uh, uh, caves with lots of engravings in them, and adjacent caves with lots of this, this portable art. Um, and this, a lot of this portable art uh, seems... Um, much more impermanent than cave art, which lasts for very long periods. Uh, we get evidence it's engraved, uh, then perhaps broken, that's perhaps reused in much more sort of domestic contexts. So it's, it's much more temporary art, but also much more a sort of domestic art, whereas some cave art, cave art seems to be set apart from daily life and perhaps visited only on special occasions. Paul, what does cave art tell us about who was where, when and why they moved around? Well, to an extent, uh, we can tell that these the groups, the individuals, whoever they were creating the art, came from very widely in the landscape. We can source the minerals uh, used for the pigments in the art. Uh, for example, Lascaux has uh, six or seven different sources of different coloured pigments from 40 to 50 kilometres away. We can do even more when we look at stone tools that we can source to uh, their geological uh, outcrops originally. So we know that these people are moving hundreds of kilometres over the course of a, an annual year uh, in pursuit of the, the wild animals they're almost entirely dependent upon uh, for survival. So it's a highly mobile life that leads them to particular points in the landscape where particular animals uh, are aggregated. And Lascaux uh, is beautifully important here because as a late French specialist Norbert Augelet uh, demonstrated so beautifully Lascaux is actually a calendar of rutting, it's a calendar of sex, of creation and, and a lot of the, the art has creation uh, in mind here too, so what it shows is horse the extinct wild cattle, uh, the aurochs and red deer, all in their rutting coats, in their finest, as it were, and in their rutting behaviours. They actually rut based on modern analogies of those animals at different times of the year. We have three seasons of creation represented in Lascaux. So these are the kind of sites that, as Alistair says, these groups aggregate in to keep information and mates flowing and so on and so forth and preserve this important information from a very far-flung environment. Alistair, there are clearly differences over time and space, but do you see similarities too? Well, there are, there are lots of similarities, especially amongst the kind of symbols that are used. And these have variously been explained as entoptic phenomena, um, which is really that the, way that you're, the way that your brain is kind of hardwired. So if you are in a kind of dark room and you start to see patterns on the wall, those patterns seem to be something, a product of the brain. So they're shared between individuals. So we seem to see the sorry, same said, symbols. Sorry, I'll have to hold you up for a moment there. Do you mean that everybody in this dark cave, if they see shapes on the walls, are seeing the same sort of shapes because of the way their brain works? Yes, not all at once. But, no, no, um, not all at once. But, but we it, are all especially seeing... if, 
Yeah, especially if you have, um, yes, there's been lots of experiments of, of depriving people of, you know, kind of sound and light. Um, also experiments, people taking uh, psychoactive substances and getting them to do sketches. And you see these geometric shapes, they appear again and again. So what, what bearing does this have on, on, on cave art? Well, that might explain why you find symbols in uh, Argentina that you also find in Australia, despite the fact that the cave art might differ in age by 25,000 years and they are 12,000 miles apart. Paul? This notion that it's altered states of consciousness has been largely uh, disproven. What caves do is make us hypersensitive to those shadows, shapes and, and so on and so forth. And when we're, when we're into doing figurative art, it suggests the shapes of horse and so on in the, in the uh, morphology of the cave walls. That's as far as it goes. We don't need uh, drugs or jumping up and down for several hours to, to start seeing these lines, which are in any case absent largely from the Paleolithic caves of uh, of Europe. This may well explain some rock art, uh, say North America uh, or thereabouts, but uh, as an explanation for Ice Age art, it, it's really nonsense. Chantal, the comparisons are often made, they've been alluded to in this programme so far, between modern art, contemporary art and cave art. And What connections do you see? Well, I think, I think this is quite an instructive exercise because it shows us really what's particular about uh, Palithic art, um, but also some similarities. So, I mean, we, my colleagues have talked about, um, we've got evidence of children in caves, um, but we've also got people who are really good at art specialists, similar range of people producing the art as today. But there's some real differences. So some of the main themes we see in Western art of the last couple of centuries um, Portraits and landscapes, for example, these are not themes in Palithic art. We, de we see very little evidence of vegetation and we see hardly any images of humans. There perhaps seems to be a taboo on the accurate representation of humans. What we see is really more, much more abstract and uh, or part human, part animal. Um, there's also um, other differences, really. So we see uh, in our current day art as commodities, whereas... Palithic art is inseparable from its sort of context of creation. And there's perhaps a sort of broader contrast between um, art, uh, art of the last few centuries as sort of really focused on representation, a sort of um, to decorate something, something we admire, something that's consumed visually, versus Palithic art, which is much more sort of, uh, if we take analogies from small-scale uh, societies across the world, Art that's much more about intervention, about doing something in the world. Paul uh, mentioned the idea of, of sympathetic, sympathetic magic, but that does seem to be the case for at least some Palithic art. It has a, it has a purpose, it does something. What analogies with artists like Picasso tell us is that these people uh, were thinking about animals, they had an intimate knowledge of their ethology, appearance and so on, uh, and, and at least the ones who have left an artistic record were able to do it very, very well. But I think beyond that uh, it doesn't really help us when we're we're really reduced to just looking at them and saying wow aren't these people clever back then and, and this kind of thing so of course it's not surprising um, it's far more difficult to hunt a one and a half ton bison <laughs> uh, dangerous you know and uh, and difficult uh, I should imagine it's a lot easier to remember what that animal is like when you're butchering them uh, so frequently uh, and reproduce it I don't know why we're so hung up uh, on art being so fantastic. 
Theirs, you mean, or ours? Theirs. You know, mostly uh, people appreciate uh, the art in terms of its aesthetics. Isn't it wonderful that these people could do it? They're us. They have the same brains and nervous systems. OK, they're living a long time ago, uh, but uh, really there's a lot more difficult things they had to deal with daily uh, in their environments. Yes, but just to stay around this for a moment or two, um, if it's not much different, what does that say about the way that the mind's working Even over that time? Art is supposed to be, and the creativity and imagination that goes into art is supposed to be seminal in the construction of what human nature is. And how do you think that idea plays into what you've just said? I think very well. We have to remember that we evolved as a hunter-gatherer dependent on wild animals in the main, so to an extent our brains have evolved uh, around the importance of animals. So it's no surprise that many of the mechanisms our brain has, the ability to uh, make sense out of a random pattern very, very quickly, this kind of thing, reflect animals. It's no surprise either that if you think about the rise of CGI and advertisements, many of them on television uh, have some kind of animal or anthropomorphised animal, which I gather sell things far better better than another human uh, would as well. So they're still with us, and that's not even to mention dogs and cats and, uh, and this kind of thing. So what it does tell us, of course, is that although figurative art was not necessarily inevitable, you know, and it probably didn't come out of nothing that somebody had the idea of, oh, I'll draw one of those bison. But the important thing is uh, that it's animals, and that was probably uh, an inevitability. As soon as the brain is able to make things up very, very quickly and interpret, you know, faces in the clouds and this kind of thing, then perhaps for a hunter-gatherer it's inevitable. And that, to me, uh, is the importance of the link. Yeah, so, so it, it's been kind of said, I think, um, by people who are struggling with the notion that somehow Neanderthals had the equivalent symbolic abilities as modern humans, that the Neanderthals were making hand stencils and doing little symbols and squiggles on cave walls, but look at Lascaux and look at Altamira, and surely that represents a massive different in the, difference <laughs> in the cognitive abilities of the two. Um, but actually, as we know from even just looking at art history, that, that art and what people do with art is completely culturally determined, mm. um, determined to some extent by fashion as well. And, and so it, it could just be that the difference in behavior is that they didn't need animals. Absolutely. They didn't need to paint animals. They needed to paint hand stencils and squiggles. Um, and it was only until the later period where the cultural demands on the groups were such that that this kind of thought process and uh, need to 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 depict the animals around them can i paul Pettit, we're coming to the end now but we just skipped over the idea that this might be some sort of magic or something to mm. do with spiritualism so um is there more to be said about that have we just let it go yes i think there is uh, we have to remember that it's a social enterprise it probably is part about all saying that we're singing from the same song sheet uh, shall we say so in a way if you think about it i suppose as a christian church service it's people coming together with a shared practice a liturgy uh, almost if you like 
and that involves the perpetuation uh, of the animals that these people are hunting, on which they're critically dependent as well. So if you have to say there's anything, and I'm, I'm careful of not generalising 25,000 years and so on, that something that does come out time and time again uh, is that it's almost some kind of magical way to renew those animals, to bring them back into the world. And that's very much how the hunter-gatherers of the recent past think. Can I ask you briefly, each of you, to say what would be most exciting for you to discover about this cave art in the next 10, 15 years? We, we currently have uh, three or four examples of Neanderthal art, and that really is not enough for, it, for us to be able to characterise it, for us yeah. to be able to work out what its distribution is, um, what the differences are between you know what, what's important to Neanderthals and what's subsequently important to modern humans. So I think, really, if we were going to spend some time uh, continuing this work, we would go out and try and find as much Neanderthal art as we could. Chantal? I think I would agree with that. Much better dating, but not just for the early art. Um, we, uh, I think these universalistic models that we... Uh, none of us are particularly keen on, are very much based on seeing it as an entire thing and not really picking out uh, the themes uh, that, that that do change throughout the time. And there, only then can we sort of assess the significance of the art much more in its uh, particular social context. Well, chronology, yes, and geography too. So... Um... In terms of the geography, we only recently know that in Indonesia uh, we have very similar art, hand stencils and also figurative art as early as 40,000, which suggests uh, that it was part of the behavioural repertoire of Homo sapiens at least as we dispersed out of Africa. But we have nothing in between. Uh, so obviously survey of everywhere between Europe uh, and Ireland, Indonesia, uh, to see how common it was or whether, in fact, it's very exceptional. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Chantal Conella, Paul Petit and Alistair Pike. Next week, uh, is this a dagger which I see before me? Yes, it's Shakespeare's Macbeth, written when he was at the height of his powers. And thank you for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. None of us are particular fans of, of these broad universal uh, explanations such as shamanism, but I think some of the work that's associated with that is quite interesting for thinking about the nature of caves and uh, life, in, life in the Paleolithic. So, uh, as I mentioned, the idea of certain rocks, certain shapes suggest an animal form. Uh, Clotz, uh, the French, uh, French archaeologist, has suggested it's actually seen as, this is seen as sort of spirit animals trying to emerge from uh, another, another world behind, behind the cave and that painting them helps, helps bringing them, bring, bring that out. And similarly, sort of hand uh, stencils, paint, you spit paint all over your hand that paints you into the cave, into perhaps this important spiritual membrane. And we see offerings in, in, stuck into crevices into the cave, bits of animal bone, uh, flint, uh, flint tools, occasional beads. So, Perhaps a concern to a world behind the cave wall, I think, is quite an interesting idea. And is the idea of going into the underworld part of that, of going into the cave? Yes, I mean, it's, it's such common Im imagery across history that caves are entrance to the underworld, um, uh, either the world of the dead or uh, another spiritual, uh, the realm of, realm of spirits, for example. So, yeah, um, 
the sort of scariness of caves. Some of these are several uh, kilometres long. People going in it, it's a it's a ordeal. It's dangerous. Really getting the sense that you're going into the earth, into something dark that's that's quite different. It does really fit in very well to those ideas as caves, uh, as entrances to an underworld. Anybody else? Yeah, I think the important thing is that we have to remember that the greater majority of cave art is undated in any absolute sense. Now, we we have a lot of schemes, relative stylistic comparison, all this, uh, that we think are fairly safe, but it, it remains to be seen that there's a lot of surprises probably ahead of us. Much of archaeology, certainly prehistoric archaeology, went through its great period of un- of getting dates for things with the advent of radiocarbon and dendrochronology in the mid 20th century but because of the difficulties uh, and it's only been in the last few years as Alistair uh, says that we've been able to start doing this so we have to remember we're still in the dark to uh, uh, an extent and as Alistair says we we have these great dogmas and we make great generalizations uh, so people take the 25,000 years of the upper paleolithic as a block and say look they've got Lascaux which might be you know half of that age uh, and so on it really is the same as, as taking say a very early iron age community pre-roman iron age comparing it with late roman or early medieval and saying look how different the two are you know aren't the early iron age people much less sophisticated than our early uh, early medieval people and so on. So it's really important that yeah. we have to nuance, as Chantal said. Can I just come in there? Uh, it's really interesting, um, the, the analogy you make there, but you can actually compare what Neanderthals were doing with what modern humans were doing if you look at the African evidence. Mm-hmm. Yes. So at 70,000 years, we have an engraved ochre block. It's got a kind of hash mark on it, if you like, along with a kind of a pebble that's got a similar kind of X's on it, maybe the, an ochre crayon. We've got perforated shell beads maybe 100,000 years ago in Israel and 70,000 in Morocco, and then some kind of scraped lines, geometric patterns, if you like, on ostrich egg shells from Deep Kloof Rock Shelter <laughs> in South Africa. And this is what modern humans are doing, how they're expressing themselves symbolically. If you compare that with what Neanderthals were doing sometime before 65,000 years ago, you really can't tell the difference. They are painting uh, squiggles and lines, uh, doing hand stencils and so on. <laughs> and it's it's that it's the misunderstanding that somehow what came much later represents mm. what humans' ability is um, versus what, what Neanderthals, what we know that Neanderthals did. Quite right. I think they're, they're both variations on a theme, both biologically uh, and behaviourally and in the artistic realm. Neanderthals are into bodies, either their own bodies and extending them into the landscape by, by art uh, or by suspending little bits of animal bodies, bones uh, and teeth uh, on their bodies as, as jewellery. Whereas we overlap with that in Africa, uh, but also we seem to be developing this non, non-figurative geometric uh, incision that might reflect perhaps clothing, patterns uh, on clothing or something like that. So, again, nuancing uh, is the important thing. 
Is there, do you think there are going to be lots more caves that will be discovered over time? Yes. I mean, any dogs around called robots. <laughs> Tends to be speleologists yes, these days. <laughs> the Spanish are doing wonders. There's one or two caves a year discovered with Paleolithic art in them. That might only be one or half a dozen images, but it's there. Less so in, in France and, and also in other countries. Um, the first examples in the Czech Republic have just been found. Some in Germany. We've had some in Britain uh, now. So where Ice Age humans are present in some abundance, uh, then we're much more likely to find it in other countries, yes.